If I had a great tool and I'm on a construction site, but I'm going to have to walk half a mile to get it, I'm probably not going to get it. So if I can't find a clear dimension for how a, a service or technology is going to fit into the workflow, you're done. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast, where we tell the stories of clinicians, healthcare leaders, and innovators who are improving the way clinicians work and deliver care. On today's episode, Evidence Care's Dr. Brian Fengler interviews Dr. F.J. Campbell, Chief Medical Officer for Ardent Health Services. Brian and F.J. talk about creating an ambulatory strategy as a CMO at a system-wide level, the importance of solutions focused on clinical workflows, exciting advancements in remote patient monitoring, and so much more. This was such a great conversation, and especially if you lead or influence the clinical operations of a hospital, you're really going to appreciate FJ's thoughts on this one. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Brian Fengler and Dr. FJ Campbell. With me today is Dr. FJ Campbell, Chief Medical Officer for Arden Health Systems. FJ, a little bit about your background. Uh, you are a board-certified emergency medicine physician. Yes. Uh, got your MD from uh, Jefferson Medical College, MBA from Temple University. Prior to joining Arden, uh, you were VP of Clinical Services for Community Health Systems, mm-hmm. Chief Medical Officer for CareSpot Express Healthcare, and Chief Medical Officer for TriStar Centennial Hospital, which is a HCA hospital. Yes. So a uh, very distinguished career. Um, and I know from previous conversations, you're just getting started on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about your upbringing and, and, and why you chose medicine as a career path. So I'm the youngest of six, raised by women, as they would say to me, much like being raised by wolves. But it was, it was the right environment for me. Um, it was a very caring, compassionate environment. Uh, I had a sister who was very much interested in going to nursing um, that was actually one of the origins of why I had an interest in going into healthcare. The real driver for me to go into healthcare was, of all things, the show MASH. Okay. Yeah, probably steered a lot of people towards MASH. I wanted to be Hawkeye. I mean, he uh-huh. just was the bomb. Um, so um, that was a key driver. And as I got, I was a psychology major, and I found that uh, the more I would learn about the psyche, you could really start realizing, you know, the impacts on the physiology of a person. And I became more interested in physiology. And to this day, I I still am. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the kind of things that really led to the groundswell of even considering medicine. Yeah. So as you're studying medicine, uh, what um, steered you towards emergency medicine? Truth be told, um, I started off in surgery and there's just an incredible grind when you're in surgery resident. I mean, you can be doing anywhere from 90 to 120 hours a week. And when I realized uh, I wanted to go into cardiothoracic surgery, there was more that I wanted in my life, um, which included um, how much time I wanted to be spending with my family. Um, I, do I think we could have been happy if I was a cardiothoracic surgeon? Yes. But it wasn't just what I wanted um for my family life, I began to realize that there were so many things that were happening um, within a hospital that affected clinical outcomes and decision-making that didn't involve physicians, that needed to involve physicians. 
that for healthcare to improve and to get the outcomes I was looking for, that I needed to get into operations. Mm-hmm. Is that what steered you towards clinical so, leadership roles? I needed to find a balance and emergency medicine allowed me to have the patient care that mm-hmm. I needed. Uh, emergency medicine also was very much connected to what drives success and failure within hospital operations. Mm-hmm. So it was clearly the right clinical area for me to focus on that would also give me some of the operation goals that I had. It's worked. It worked out perfectly. Awesome. You've been at Ardent for about six years now. Yes. Um, we're actually in your guys' uh, new office here in Brentwood, Tennessee, which I mm-hmm. think you may have the nicest office in Nashville now. My office, no. There are nicer <laughs> ones. Our office building in general, yes. That would be true. So how have you, um, have you seen the organization evolve over the six years you've been with the organization? Taking COVID out of the equation for a moment, although COVID was overwhelmingly a driving force in the evolution of the company. When I came to Arden originally, I was attracted to the notion that you would have the rigor of a for-profit entity doing joint ventures. And the joint Mm -hmm. ventures began in the category of, we would joint venture with academic centers for the acquisition of not-for-profit assets. And that partnerships included um, Hackensack, it's included um, University of Kansas City Medical Center, Um, and University of Texas. And the idea was that that was going to be our growth model. As we've seen an evolution in healthcare, where we're going to have to achieve more of our desired clinical outcomes outside of an acute care environment, you know, we've begun to see that there are other areas where we're going to have to make our investments. There are other partnerships that we're going to have to have really focusing on the care outside the four walls of the hospital. Um, And that's why we started redirecting some of our joint venture activities towards service and technology companies. Mm -hmm. They would include evidence care, uh, but they also include Care AI, Care Harmony, BioIntelligence, Cadence, um, C2AI. So under the circumstances, we're realizing that there's expertise that we have to gain access to. And a very positive way of doing that is through the joint venture model. Obviously, a lot of headwinds in healthcare right now coming mm-hmm. post-COVID. What are some of the main initiatives uh, that you see uh, for Ardent you know, over the next two to three years? Uh, starting about a year ago, we really wanted to see how well positioned we were to succeed in a Medicare Advantage environment, an MSSP ACO environment, mainly because we're, we're seeing significant shifts in the payer environment an increase of MA's portion of Medicare, an increase of MSSPA ACO portion of Medicare. And that really does start focusing how well you can achieve, again, desired clinical outcomes without relying on acute care facilities. Or another way of saying that achieving desired clinical outcomes with achieving a desired cost profile, Mm -hmm. it is what it is. So to that end, how are we structured as an organization to deliver that care in a model that that informs our ambulatory strategy, our payer strategy, what are the technology and services that we're going to pursue? And, and much of it is not, for the first time, for any of those questions, focused on our hospital operations. Certainly, we've been having you know a concentrated effort in the ambulatory space and what our managed care strategy has to be outside the hospital. The payer shift is really accelerating that process where more of our time, attention, human capital, financial capital will be going into those environments to succeed in those environments. Mm -hmm. Meaning the environment of how do you 
perform well in an MMA, MSSP ACO environment. Mm -hmm. And it's not the same of, of, for what we have to do today. Yeah. Now your system chief medical officer, mm -hmm. what do you see as your role in a large health system like Ardent that has hospitals all over the country as, as system CMO? Where are your initiatives and what are you looking to drive? I pay a lot of attention right now to this transition that I'm referring to. When I first came to Ardent six years ago, really concentrating on the clinical outcomes and the clinical operations that were germane to value-based care. So what's going on in hospital-acquired infections and readmissions? Mm -hmm. How are we doing on a mortality front? Uh, very, again, centric on hospital operations and shoring up our performance there. In time, that, that real attention to those details proved that we performed very well from a value-based purchasing perspective, value-based care perspective. What I also began to see is that this was time limited. And the metrics that we weren't really focusing on were where I thought our future was gonna be. Well, how are we performing in patient acquisition? What are the services that we have in a manner that can be affordable to patients outside of the hospital? What are we doing to identify patients who are deteriorating so that they don't necessarily need to even come back to the hospital? So no one really was paying a great deal of attention to 30-day readmissions. Mm -hmm. And that was really, in my mind, a clear indicator of we were, we were taking hospital care as the pure and sole focus. So we started making assessments of our future about three years ago uh, about where we're going to have to shift our care. So as a system CMO, the shift in care has consumed a huge amount of my attention. Ten of your hospitals recently received an A uh, safety rating mm -hmm. from the LeapFrog Group. How have you guys been able to achieve that with the fact that you have hospitals all over the country? And, and how have you really been able to standardize quality and safety across the organization? Um, there are a number of metrics within LeapFrog. I'm a, a significant proponent for what LeapFrog is trying to accomplish in its overall mission. No two ways about it. You look at the, the, the domains within LeapFrog, and we began to really benefit from what we had been doing with hospital-acquired infections and patient safety indicator events, what we had done to basically reinforce um, ICU staffing. We very clearly took seriously uh, their components related to EMR, and I value what LeapFrog is focusing on because it's focusing, for the most part, on outcome areas that were important to us. So when we started standardizing our efforts on um, interventions for hospital-acquired infections, when we started focusing on sepsis mortality, CHF mortality, readmission, these were all things that were in alignment with our overall mission. So you really don't wanna have a circumstance where you are allowing for a huge variation in care on how to control eclabsy or quality or how you want to execute on C. diff or how you want to drive the easy access to a sepsis protocol, a sepsis bundle that's absolutely demonstrated success. You know, we've been able to very effectively leverage Epic as a tool across the enterprise mm -hmm. because it's we've really concentrated not just on the content within Epic, but the workflow, really leveraging the deterioration index. So as a system of 30 hospitals, we're all having to address from a workflow perspective, the same problems. So beginning to actually 
concentrate on Epicus. It's the content that's there, but the workflows are easier to make use of the full potential potential of Epic yeah. has really been a system-wide effort. And that's why we've had system-wide results. Leapfrog happens just to be the, if you will, the outcome measures of very specific endeavors within Ardent. We're fortunate that as a result, um, their measures seem to be in alignment with our clinical priorities, uh, but our clinical priorities were worked on as a system and therefore we're succeeding as a system. It happens to just quite frankly, align well with Leapfrog. <laughs> yeah. That's the truth. So, so you mentioned Epic. I believe you guys are on a single instance across we are. all 30 hospitals. Really lucky for yeah. that. Having multiple EMRs across your system, um, it's not necessarily the path to ruin, but it's the path to complete emotional breakdown. <laughs> yeah, especially for, for a lot of CMOs CMO, yeah. in this town who are like, that, that's true. I'm suffering. I'm not suffering on that front. I feel yeah. very lucky. And it seems like the way you mentioned the safety and quality initiatives, when you identify something that works, standardized across the organization. Infinitely easier. Yeah. Into those um, identification of and, those. And our serious safety events, our serious safety event rate, because of our capacity to, if you will, distribute the information. Um, we are a high reliability patient safety organization. Okay, what does that mean? What does that actually translate into? Um, we have a very aggressive effort towards reporting. We really promote good catch, like really promote reporting. We're really concentrating on closing the loop so units understand that what they report, they've realized, is not adversely impacting them. And that the more they report, the more they actually see a, a turn in activity to actually implement interventions. Um, a lot of those interventions as a result, live within Epic workflows. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what actually impacts the reduction in safety events. I mean, you and I've talked about, about this before. Good workflows lead to good clinical outcomes, which lead to good financial outcomes. Mm -hmm. In this organization, it's workflow, workflow, workflow. What are you guys doing to really lean into workflow and making that better for the doctors and nurses? We saw during COVID, especially in 2022, that access to nursing staff, to staff beds, really became a challenge uh, for the entire industry. And that's when members of our board really started challenging us on, what are we gonna be able to do to have a much more sustainable bedside nursing model? And that also includes, let's say, patient care technicians. Like, what are we gonna do to, to have a more desirable nursing and bedside technician experience so that we decrease the turnover we have in the space and make a more desirable place to work. Mm -hmm. And that's where we really started concentrating on, are we literally going to be able to automate the collection of vital signs? First of all, it takes an inordinate amount of time to collect vital signs. It's not necessarily something we do enough to actually have a meaningful impact. Deterioration indexes really count on having lots of vital signs. So are we collecting enough of them? Are we collecting them well? And for the time that we're putting into it, are we really making a huge clinical impact coming out of it? And that's where we started working with biointelligence to automate the collection of vital signs. So we're putting bio buttons, we're working towards putting bio buttons on all the patients on certain units. Now we're going to multiple units. Now in the Hillcrest market at Hillcrest Medical Center, we're gonna be doing almost all the patients in the hospital mm. because there's 1,440 measurements a day. 
So the goal here is to quite literally demonstrate the success of automating the collection of, of vital signs. But the more important feature here is with that information, we're going to be able to better job of identifying patients who are deteriorating. And that has a huge impact on the intellectual and emotional welfare of nurses. If they don't have this grinding workflow, but if more importantly, the information coming out of that, success to me would be the following, that I would go to a patient on unit and be like, I don't know what the patient's vital signs is, but their alert watch looks great. Having that, if you will, that information that's, you know, watching their back mm -hmm. so that they, they can have an awareness of, I may not know exactly everything that's going on with my patients, but I have the ability to know who's deteriorating reliably and who's not. I think that will have a huge emotional impact on nurses and they'll say it's easier to work there and it's safer to work there. Yeah. There's a wide variation of normal vital signs. You and I right. both been there. What's the patient's heart rate? What's the patient? And, and meanwhile, it's, vital a, point, signs are it's vital, a point in time. But if you're only and, collecting four of them yeah. and you actually, for them to be relevant, I mean, four in a day, okay? But for them to be relevant, let's say we realize later, you need to be doing that 200 times a day. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't do that. We don't have the physical wherewithal to do that. That's where you start leveraging technology to make a, a more profound clinical impact. And I, I do believe that, that, that this will be something that will be its own area of healthcare science for a period of time, mm. but in time will change the standard of care. That's awesome. And do those initiatives get started at the local level and, and, and realize, hey, this is one of our hospitals that's doing a really great job on sepsis. Over, yes. Let's, let's deploy this across the organization. Or is it more of a top-down approach? Here I am saying we, we really look for uniform solutions, but when we are at that point trying to identify what are gonna be the desirable solutions, we do promote experimentation at that point. So mm -hmm. almost by axiom, I can tell you that the solution is actually identified by end users in the field. You know, I had this other conversation before, before made for end users by end users. Mm -hmm. When you have those solutions, considering the problems are so common, the likelihood of being able to distribute a new intervention with success across an enterprise when you can see how the end users identified the problem, identified solutions, incorporated workflow changes, and therefore had a more highly reliable result, uh, it translates very well across secondary and tertiary centers across the United States because we're effectively intervening on very similar problems. Mm -hmm. What are some of the initiatives um, over your time here that uh, have been successes that you're most proud of? on the clinical side? Well, no doubt about it. When I first got here, where Ardent was and where it needed to be with hospital-acquired infections, patient safety indicator events required near immediate attention. And what that boiled down to was, you know, getting to a committed um, set of interventions, but more importantly, a committed approach towards routine outcomes analysis. Event analysis, down to any single infection, when you have your unit directors, your unit managers actually doing the cause analysis, and I don't mm -hmm. mean like a root cause analysis, but the cause analysis, when you have a deviation in care, all of a sudden you start finding out like, wow, we weren't able to do a chlorhexidine bath on a patient with a clapsy because the par values for chlorhexidine wipes were wrong. I mean, 
unless you take the time to get mm -hmm. into what led to an operations failure, because that's what it is. It's almost never a single point failure. Mm -hmm. It's usually something embedded in your operations that are leading to the fallout. You, you get the results you have because you're exquisitely designed to get the results you have. If you don't like your results, you've got to change the design. You won't know what the design change should be unless you have your managers actually getting into on their own for their unit because they own that unit. Mm -hmm. What's driving your failure mode? So, so in your reporting quality and safety events, you've put processes in place to teach your unit charge nurses or whoever's responsible for that unit to report up the events around that. We have a whole structure episode. around specific event analysis for yeah. all the HAIs and all the PSN IDs. Yep. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, some degree of centralized effort becomes helpful. I mean, they're the customer. And I know that sounds incredibly cliche. We are as valuable as we're giving them products that make them easier to execute and get the clinical out outcomes that they need. So, you know, that was a key area. COVID really did lead to, I think, some positives out there. Um, we as an organization become much more effective as a multidisciplinary organization so that we could make rapid cycle changes. Our former operations weren't nearly what we needed to be. Mm -hmm. We became far more entrepreneurial. We became much more willing to, with adaption, try, experiment, fail, adapt, try again, succeed. One of the things that we were really concerned about is that we could have, we could lose that along the way. Um, we've been able to really retain that, that if you will, multidisciplinary effort. We had clinicians who learned more about operations and operators who became more clinical. And the nexus became, we had clinical operators and we have worked hard to retain that. Mm -hmm. So at least from a clinical and operations perspective, did we become a better organization coming out of COVID? We did, and we needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, so another area of my attention is making sure that we don't lose that. So I'm very proud of that. And I would say the third area that actually gives me comfort is that our sponsors, um, our board members really are not putting their heads in the sand. They see the change that's happening with Medicare. They see that the change that's happening in the payer landscape. They realize that we're going to have to evolve as a healthcare system to, again, achieve desired clinical outcomes without relying on acute care facilities. Um, and they're not shying away from it. Mm -hmm. um, is that that will be disruptive to business models. And not only are they embracing it, they're encouraging us to embrace mm -hmm. these changes as opposed to just simply be afraid of them. Yeah. Arden is not only a for-profit health system, but you're private equity backed. What are some of the benefits that's come with? Technically speaking, EGI is a family fund. Okay. Um, here's a key benefit. They're in it for the long haul. Mm -hmm. they, they like to make very strong companies, some of which they hold for a very long yeah, time. Generational investments. Which would, would be different than, let's say, the time horizons for venture capital or private equity. They concentrate on where a company needs to get to in the long term to achieve the successes that they're looking for. They pride themselves as an organization on how well they can understand and control risk. And so long as a company is bringing good returns, the more they have an, the, the ability to understand the company, well, by definition, 
they're going to be a better under a better ability to understand the risks for the industry and the risks for that company. So that's a huge advantage in terms of stability for our funding. Having a stable sponsor is a decisive advantage for Ardent. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year, you guys announced the launching of Innovation Studio and partner with Switchpoint Ventures. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little more about that. One of the things that we've appreciated as we started understanding the shift towards more of the care that we're going to have to provide outside of the hospital, we became much more connected to um, startup companies. And to me, there are various stages in working with a startup company's product, Um, even some larger company products. It's defining a problem. It's a design to intervene on that problem. And inherently, if it's technology or service, it's, it's the actual creation of a minimally viable product. Mm-hmm. And that's when we would often get contacted after you had that minimally viable product. And that's where the question was, hey, help us further develop this. And development would mean further refined components within the actual service or technology of itself. But that's also further refined, well, how should it be deployed? And what people should be using this? And what processes should they use? And yes, the cliche of people process technology, uh, but for many people who are developers, what they don't have access to would be the people. Mm -hmm. And they'll have a concept of how people should deploy that new technology or service, meaning what the process should be. But it's theoretical until it actually gets into the environment and becomes actual. So a huge part of what we have to do is be the developer. We just didn't really realize that was our role until, and you heard me describe so many of our strategic partners needed us to serve in that space, which is why, candidly, once we started realizing um, we are a developer, that then we needed to joint venture with them. Mm-hmm. And you know that joint venture takes a form of equity, if you will. The reality was for some areas, we began to think, Now, wait a minute, especially as we are routinely getting offers for come work with us, come work with us. We're realizing, you know, they're not that far along. And considering now we have an understanding of how much development we do, and it's not just developing the people process technology, it's then creating the scale Mm -hmm. that, well, how, what is actually out of our reach? We certainly can define the problem on some level, we could probably even help with the design, but we can't make a minimally viable product. And that's where SwitchPoint came in and the joint venture we formed with SwitchPoint, now in the name of Corian, to to actually fill that gap. So Arden has switched from three years ago, we can't be a development company, to now we certainly are becoming a development company. Mm-hmm. And it's mainly because as we see, especially in the AI space, as we see just the sheer volume of pitches coming our way and how similar the products look. It's like, no, wait a minute. How far away are we from actually doing this on our own? And we've had some initial success with that. And we're realizing if we take a, make a deeper commitment to it, candidly, the margins we'll make will simply be better. Yeah. Well, and just to open that up a little bit. So say there's a, there's, there's a challenge, there's multiple solutions and you, have a handful of companies coming to you with similar solutions for the same problem. How do you guys identify, okay, here's the one we're going to hitch our wagon to and do a pilot or? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be one. Um, Now I know some, 
some colleagues in this building would say, hey, let's pick one so we could just focus on one implementation. That's great in theory, but challenging if you want to know who you should be partnering with. So in some cases, we actually take multiple vendors in the exact same space to Mm -hmm. see what we can learn from one another. Candidly, from what it's worth, even in that situation, some of those vendors even choose to come together and partner and work together. Mm -hmm. But I I will say, when I'm looking at products, I really try to think of it from the standpoint of, it's, let's say it was going to be anything that would be impacting if I had been in, you know, a full-time emergency medicine doctor, it's 2.30 in the morning. Am I going to use this? It's really cool. But there are five people in the lobby and a rig just showed up. If it can't get into workflow, mm-hmm. it could be great. It's a function of if I had a great tool and I'm on a construction site, but I'm gonna have to walk half a mile to get it, I'm probably not gonna get it. So if I can't find a clear dimension for how a, a service or technology is going to fit into the workflow, you're done. Mm-hmm. If I'm talking to people who think of workflow as something that can be figured out, not that they're rude, but they, they treat it kind of like a, as a trifling detail, you're done. Mm-hmm. For what it is worth, the parties that just intuitively begin with the workflow typically are people who've had to live with the problem. And that's almost certainly going to be a doctor or a nurse. So when I have technologies coming my way that I can clearly see it was a, a doctor, a nurse, a social worker who was doing the work, a psychologist, a pharmacist – in a very personal way, they can tell me like the following problems were occurring and it had this impact on my life. I'm like, you pretty much got me from hello. Now I'm just hoping that you actually have something that's relevant. And then finally, you're going to start showing me like how this is something that you would have used in your own workflow. Okay. They don't even know it at that point, but you have gotten to the winner circle possibly. Mm-hmm. And now what are the economics? Can we make the economics work? Now, usually people who have gotten to that point where they've taken the big leap of faith and they've left a huge part of their career, they're usually people who I can trust. And part of what they're looking for within us is that they can trust working with us and we're not going to work them over and that we're going to want to see that their company is going to be successful. There are other healthcare organizations that are doing this kind of work. Remember, I want people to see us as a company that you can effectively joint venture with. Yeah. And that means you cannot have a very one-sided relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's why people keep on coming back. Yep. Yep. Because if you as a health system beat down your vendors. What are you thinking? Yeah. Especially if you are joint. What I like about the joint venture model is it immediately starts taking out of like some of the, the questions that we would have that could be more contentious in the contracting process or in the technology review process. Yes, there are people here who like want to protect the organization, but like many organizations, you can protect the organization to a point where you have, where you've eliminated risk, but you've also eliminated opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, when you actually say, wait a minute, we, we really need to make sure that they benefit from this agreement as well, because we're equity partners with them. It just, the mindset changes almost immediately. Yeah. Great book that Evidence Care CEO Bo made us read, Speed of Trust. 
yes, working at the speed of trust is a, is a key component to yep. this. A few more questions here. So what do you see as your role in innovation across the system as a clinical leader? This is where I'm going to make comments that I regret. Um, I don't want anyone to ever accuse me of being innovative. Okay. And whenever I say that to people, they're like, that's so odd. I like where you're going with it. We aren't doing anything that we don't have to do. We are pursuing these areas of clinical care. We are making these partnerships because of the clinical environment that we feel like we are going to have to go into. Mm -hmm. It's going to be disruptive. It's going to be taking on a degree of the unknown. I would rather be viewed as being pragmatic, objective, that we are venturing forward in the changes we have to make in our clinical model again, because we are adapting to the circumstances around us. You know, sphere of influence, sphere of control. I try, I rather focus on what we can control and preparing for future that you've heard me say this multiple times, where we're gonna have to achieve desired clinical outcomes without relying on acute care facilities, mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to influence the federal government or payers. And there are people who are trying to do that and I, and I applaud them for their efforts. It's going to be hard enough and we're gonna need it all the time we can get to for what we feel like we're gonna to have to accomplish to be positioned to succeed in an MA, MSSPA, ACO environment three years from now. I'm gonna need all of that time I could use more time. Mm -hmm. So we're really trying to concentrate on what are the ways in which we want to execute on care? How can we do that effectively? How can we do that reliably? How can we do that without completely disintermediating ourselves, cannibalizing ourselves? Some people are going to say some of the things that we're going to do, especially if they're successful, retrospectively, like, wow, that was really innovative. I would rather say, no, that was really necessary. Mm, I like it. So lots of new and interesting things coming out um, in the world of digital health. Where do you see the biggest opportunities for digital health in, in the industry? There isn't one opportunity, so that makes it easier to answer. Um, identifying patients who are deteriorating at home before they really deteriorate. So the remote patient monitoring space, if I could ever influence anything at a CMS level, I would say, hey, wait a minute, in the same way that there, a patient can take medications for COPD and cardiovascular disease and diabetes, okay, we don't say, well, we're only going to pay for one of those meds. But for remote patient monitoring right now, and we're going to see that there are going to be venues of specialization in remote patient monitoring. We're already seeing it. Mm -hmm. Only one vendor can get RPM. So all of a sudden, you've got people in the remote patient monitoring space that are trying to say, no, 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 no we're not a one-trick pony. I'm like, you're kind of a one-trick pony. Like, but we're not. I'm like, but you are. Okay. We really need to be in a situation where we could have more specialization for that. The same thing goes for chronic care management. The digital space is allowing us greater access to the patient in their home. I believe that the monitoring is going to increase. I think that the capacity of doing televisits in the home will certainly increase. So as we start hearing more about hospital at home, it's not that it's clinically efficacious or not. It is. It's can we actually get to a payment model that's okay. going to actually be acceptable to all parties? And right now, that's hard to argue. But if we can get to that model, then I would say a comp I think the telehealth in the home will actually expand. And the other feature there will be in terms of how we engage the patient 
on some level, there will be, in my view, there already is a questionable role for if you see an advertisement in the paper, in a magazine, on the radio, on TV, on a billboard, none of those things are focused to the individual patient. And mm-hmm. maybe directionally they have some value, but the most effective way of connecting with patients will be that when we have an outreach to a patient, it's going to be based on what we know about that individual from their clinical perspective. So on some level, targeted, targeting relevant outreach to a patient based on their healthcare needs that we know about, I think will be much, much more beneficial. So the quality of care coordination, I think is going to go up considerably. Mm-hmm. That will be a real battleground between healthcare systems and insurers and PE backed firms who just want to take on a very specific area there, there will be a lot of competition for who's controlling communication to the patient outside the four walls of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And that is where it will be a cage match that I want to win. <laughs> yeah. As a core competency, how we're like, what are the core competencies of your organization? Mm-hmm. A core competency for us will be staying connected to that patient, holding their hand the entire time and being in a situation where we are their trust broker and not allowing a fraction of daylight to come between the patient and us. Yeah. And that's going to be an aggressive competition. So we are investing heavily in that. So a core competency for us will be care coordination, care steerage. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a little bit about where the opportunity is for digital innovation in healthcare. Separate from that, what are just some of the coolest things you've seen in the last couple of years Digital innovation is a pretty broad topic. I think what's going on with wearables is pretty impressive because we're going to be in a much better position to understand and identify patients who are deteriorating. What's going on in pharmacology is 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 unbelievable. I mean, when you look at the medications that are out there that are effectively taking patients' diabetic control, diabetic care, like... Zempic, Majerino, mm-hmm. they're making people get off of insulin, go to oral hypoglycemics, lose 30 pounds, go off of two blood pressure medications down to one. What's going on with the biologics? Unbelievable. And I mean, depending on the, you know, the gastroenterologist you talk to, you know, they're talking about how Crohn's and ulcerative colitis with the improvement of the biologics will be a, just a, for the vast majority of those patients, just a, mm-hmm. a chronic medical condition. Shouldn't really, really be overwhelmingly disruptive to your lifestyle. I mean, think of the patients that you and I saw on the E, like some of those just tortured people had multiple bowel resections. We didn't improve anything in our medical mm-hmm. care, like our diagnostic capabilities or surgery. That came from the advancements of biologics and pharmacy. Mm-hmm. So I would say the, the kind of domains of the technology that's going to better enable us to appreciate the patient's overall health condition in the home, what's going on in the biologic space for pharmacy, I, I find it be profound. Mm-hmm. Most important question of the interview, um, what do you think of Philadelphia Eagles chances this year? Are you going back to the Super Bowl? Um, well, two things. Not the hottest team in baseball, but pretty damn hot are the Phillies. Pretty happy about that. And and yes, do I think that the that the Eagles are going to be just impossibly difficult to deal with? 
they will. But as we all know, it's Philadelphia against the world. And I'm okay with that. Nice. FJ, I just want to thank you again for joining us today on the Better Care Podcast. Thanks for hosting us in your office. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.